On the Pilot TV podcast this week, we're getting embroiled in Irish politics in BBC One's new James Nesbitt thriller, Bloodlands, taking a trip to the moon in order to correct an oversight for season two of Apple's For All Mankind, and finally, trying to work out what in the name of Great Odin's Raven is really going on in Netflix's loopy psychological thriller, Behind Her Eyes. I'm James Dyer, and welcome to the Pilot TV podcast, a show that needs to address a very grave injustice. Several weeks ago, we didn't have time to review a certain TV show and were reduced to covering it as an also out. A week later, my illustrious co-host Boyd Hilton described this treasure of a show as his own personal hate watch. To add further insult to unspeakable indignity, I last week mocked my other co-host Terry White by saying that, having stopped watching SVU, she probably watches two episodes of this show before she goes to bed, casting further shade upon this incredible series. I refer... Of course, to fate the Winx saga. Now, this, if you don't know, is the gripping live-action evolution of Nickelodeon's Winx Club, which recounts the moving tale of Bloom the Fire Fairy, who leaves her home to join Althea College, the magical boarding school in the other world. And there she meets other fairies, Stella, the light fairy, Aisha, the water fairy, Terra, who is an earth fairy, and Musa, who is a mind fairy. And they all team up to tackle an ancient threat known as the Burned Ones. And I have to tell you, I watched all six of these pretty much back-to-back last weekend, and this is the new con row in my life like i am a hundred percent here for these fucking fairies i mean yeah i mean are we surprised there's no. you know a shit show I'm... a shit show with women with show. wings and off it goes <laughs> they have to earn their wings terry one does not simply walk into wings in wings well you know they, they wouldn't be underlying misogyny if they didn't in some way have to earn <laughs> the thing that they have a right to it's actually really icky if you look up winks like urban dictionary describes it as in the winks are a kind of second puberty it's like it's really grim oh, the way they God. describe yeah, so it really oh, something that it is innately theirs and they have had a right to all along they then have to weirdly earn it's almost like a parable for modern life yes yes it is so uh yeah so terry you of course have not watched the wink saga but boyd you have and you've seen all six episodes haven't you yeah, yeah. are you gagging I mean, for season two not really i mean it was perfectly watchable but uh, you know I'm surprised it took you this long. I to, know! To, uh, it's been in my watch list, genuinely. Yeah. Like Netflix provided it for yeah. me way before Christmas, and it I is, just never watched it. It is quite unintentionally funny. Quite like, like, I like how like, um, implausibly hunky and ripped <laughs> every single member of the cast is, <laughs> and how, you know, it's funny. And Rob James Collier from um, Downton pops up, isn't he? Yes, he's quite I love funny. the fact that Mr. Barrow is there as a kind of yeah. ninja trainer. Oh, he's and incredible. Leslie Sharp pops up, who's a legend. I love yes. Leslie Sharp. Yeah. Indeed, Terry's face, quite right, yeah. She suddenly pops up and it looks really, uh, I mean, uncomfortable, like within yeah. the context of this high fantasy bullshit. No, she suddenly... she's brilliant. Like some of her lines in it. Yeah. Like, what I really love about this, it does that thing that the magicians used to do, where it takes kind of a very YA kind of concept and then elevates it to adulthood by just dropping swear words and references to anal sex in yeah. really bizarre sort of yeah. like jarring but moments. I, I almost felt because it's so, because it's really quite, kind of um, vanilla isn't it really I mean it kind of you know just about touches on sexuality and you know this that and the other but really I mean compared to sex education right it's very, it's yeah. very vanilla isn't it? and I almost feel like Netflix at some point might just go can you just make it a little bit edgier just <laughs> throw a few swear words in you know because it's a bit bland yeah. and it's still really bland isn't it come on it's bland no, it's amazing. Like, so I love it Leslie Sharp at one point someone says you know are there a lot of these burned ones she goes there's a shit ton of them just it's out right. of nowhere yeah. and one other fairy goes okay are you okay and she just turns 
goes, it hurts like a motherfucker. <laughs> and right. I think because Isn't they're all English. Word? Isn't there a C word at one point? Yes, I think there yeah. is. And I they're mean, all English, which hell. gives it a more yeah. caustic edge to it. Apart from Bloom, he's American, but everyone else is English. And yeah. it's just, oh, it's, I love it. I just love it. <laughs> Doofus. The I costumes know. are fucking disastrous, but other yeah, than that, yeah, the costumes are disastrous. Yeah, or just there's a real fashion sort of malfunction. It's funny, yeah, it's really funny. James, you oh, are literally yeah. beside yourself. I know. I, like, I, so... I must admit, I do have a, I do quite enjoy things like the magicians, even the hundred, which is another kind of YA show which has a slightly adult bent to it. But there, there was something about this. I thought this, this is, this is exactly what I need in my life until Carnival Row season two comes. So only yes. six episodes as well. I feel like I that's a bit of a telltale. Yeah, I needed more. I felt. <laughs> There wasn't enough winks. <laughs> I tweeted Netflix about this. I was like, give me oh, more winks. Oh give my me more God, winks you now. Absolute loser. Who tweets Netflix? <laughs> I wanted them to understand my support for the fairies. Oh my God. Oh I my mean, God. you'll be on the poster now. Right? I mean, <laughs> oh I'd happily God. put my name on the poster. Yeah, I bet you will. Oh my God. <laughs> The Wink Saga. I'm telling you, it'll change your life. Yeah. Uh, what have you guys been watching that doesn't involve fairies? Jesus. <laughs> Terry, did you watch the newsroom? I didn't. Jesus Christ, it's like you're just phoning in this no, podcast, I, isn't it? Do you know what? Last weekend, I, I teed it up and I just, a summit stuck in me. I think I'm so, you said, watch the newsroom. It's nowhere near as good as the West Wing, but it'll do. I think it's exactly what you said. And every time I go to watch it, I just keep hearing that in my head. And I'm so, mm. I'm still so madly in love with the West Wing that I feel like I'm not going to give it a proper chance. I can't feel excited about watching it because everybody said to me, it's the closest you can get, but it's also nowhere near as good. And that just makes me feel really depressed. So you think that actually going the gateway drug route is the opposite of what you need and actually you should just go straight to the leftovers? I mean, I think I might have to because honestly, the thought of doing something derivative and then I'm worried. Yeah. Do you know what I'm worried about? I'm worried I'm, it's going to make me look at Aaron Sorkin differently. It's going to make <laughs> yeah, me like... Yeah. I think it's a danger. Yeah. I think it's and a it's danger. Like, I can't... I, I, yeah. I think tactically that's the wrong move, yeah, to go All right, all right. Well, I'm, yeah. if you wish to skip that and like push it further down the line and go straight to the leftovers, I, I can endorse this, this okay. course I think of action. The leftovers is a good option. I'm going to do, so you, yeah, I need something you will know a step away. The first episode of The Leftovers, you'll immediately know yeah. whether you were in it or not. Yeah. I mean, there's no messing about mm. with that with that show. Justin Theroux was on Louis Theroux's podcast this week. Mm. Um, I don't know if it must have been confusing. Was, yeah. Uh, it, it was confusing because obviously they're, they're um, cousins. No, they're, they're, I mean, they're obviously related. Uh, but he's pronounced his Theroux. Justin Thoreau yeah. and Louis says Thoreau but they talked about the leftovers it was very interesting and he's incredibly proud of it and thinks it's one of the greatest they things should, ever um, which it is they it should is. really yeah. agree how to pronounce their surname <laughs> they should <laughs> family exactly. name exactly <laughs> exactly yes okay so yeah I am going to I'm going to do that I just I yeah I sat there last Saturday I had an afternoon I have every weekend I have a three hours off to myself off work off child and I was like I'm going to sit here and I'm going to watch it and I was like I can't do it and I'm just I'm still too close to the West Wing and the thought the the kind of like existential despair I feel at spending an hour on something that I've already been told is like it but a bit more shit yeah yeah is a proper downer. I still think you'll like it I do still think you'll well, like it I think it, I'm but... going to go with your sign off Oh, master. I'm going to go, <laughs> go um, leftovers, then I'm going to yeah. circle back to newsroom. Uh, unless you suddenly feel that you need to take a detour via Friday Night Lights. Oh, well, you see, that's another... I have to say, I've got a feeling that's going to, like, tick all of my, uh, my heart boxes. 
Well, let's put that off while mm. because I quite fancy a Friday Night Lights rewatch. So maybe okay. I'll do it at the same time as you so we can talk about okay. it. Boydie, what have you been watching? Um, well, apart from Impeachment 2, the uh, the trial <laughs> yeah. of yes. Donald Trump, which I have been watching quite a lot of, and it is absolutely fascinating. Like They had new footage of the um, the siege on the Capitol, uh, terrifying, terrifying footage of you know cops being kind of uh, mm. beaten back. And it was really interesting. Mm. And this is a period, you know, this is... Obviously, history is being made as we speak. Obviously, Donald Trump's going to be acquitted because that's Clearly. the way it is. But it is absolutely riveting viewing, mostly on CNN. Um, so apart from that, I also have gone back to The Serpent, which we Oh, God, didn't that grubby like. little show. <laughs> the grubby little show. <laughs> Wow, wow. Grubby little I mean, show. It's no Wink Saga. It's no Wink Saga. It's no Wink sure. Saga. No. It is no Wink Saga. No. But it's actually... I, so what people a lot of people have been saying oh it gets better and better so I've gone back to it and actually I've done I've done an almost 180 and almost and reverse ferreted almost episode four is is the key episode I think where it really gets much more exciting than I think it has been by that point and the whole flash back and forwards thing which was ridiculous when to start with it's literally like three months earlier three months later four months later three months earlier <laughs> two weeks later I mean it is and it carries on like that but at that point you're like okay I'm just dealing with this. This is the way they're telling the story. I'll let it, you know, deal with it. And it is an incredible story. And I think I've just got, I've just kind of, I've stopped judging it for being so stylish, you know, because it is, as we talked about when we reviewed it, it is, it is like made in a very 70s deliberate way. And it looks incredible. And the fashions are, you know, there's 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 stories in, in you know, Vogue about the fashions of the serial killer drama, The Serpent, because everything looks amazing in it. And it is so stylish. But the story is incredible. And it is, in the end, it's really well told and it's really well acted. And so, yeah, I, it's it's it, 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 episode eight goes out as will have gone out on Sunday um, by the time we finish it and it's all on iPlayer on it but I do think it ends up being a really good show so I've almost done a reverse ferret on it yeah mm. <laughs> no not convinced okay I'm not convinced I'm not convinced I didn't um I didn't talk about what I was actually watching though I just talked oh. about oh, you've what I did something watch. Yeah. oh this is good to know <laughs> well first, first things first this may or may not be considered news but i consider it news oh which is i bought a proper telly so oh yes yeah. how have we not That's mentioned exciting. this so yeah. i have i have famously always had a small telly so the telly i had i bought when i moved back from america like what five and a half years ago and uh it was like 150 quid and it was just to see me through and then i kept it and i kind of liked the fact that you know i wasn't be less slave to the big telly and um but everybody used to take the piss out of me so i'd put a picture on on Instagram or whatever of what of me watching something or take a picture of my front room and somebody would always go, an Empire reader usually would always go, yeah. what the fuck is that telly? <laughs> it's not like you're editor of the world's biggest Why movie magazine or so anything. small? Right? And you took the piss out of it, out of me for it and I understand that you two have, Boyd has what, 70? 78. 78. James has a... 78! I didn't even know it was 78. I think my house is 78. Um, (laughs) But James has 65. And so I've been saying to my um, uh, baby daddy, we really need to get a proper telly. Like, this is really shit. Because also the interface was bad. They're like, just shit. Let's just Mm. get a proper telly. So, Mm. (laughs) I mean, literally had nothing on it. So uh, we had some problems. We bought a telly. It was shit. Um, And so in the end, in desperation, we ended up ringing James Dyer. Uh, wow. To, so I could TV explain to, to you. To step in and TV explain not just to me, but to the father of my child. And I, I will say at this point that I think it takes quite a man 
to be able to ask another man for help choosing the family mm. television. I thought Respect. that was a great show of strength in his own masculinity. Um, and so James recommended us a um, 50-inch TV. Even though you only wanted a 40. Even though I had managed to negotiate a 42-inch. <laughs> um, uh, we ended up getting a 50. And I've got to tell you, it's a fucking life changer. It's like everything's so big. All the pictures, are big. all the pictures are big, and the sound. Like we, I think we're going to get a sound bar. Yeah, that's a good chance. Um, <laughs> the way you said that, a sound, a bar. sound bar. What do, what do you call it? Do you call it a sound a bar? Sound bar. Um, amazing. It's so exciting. So what? So I um the very first thing we watched, I watched on our new telly was. Oh. Married at First Sight Australia. It was the commitment ceremony. Well, there were two commitment ceremonies this week. This is shit is getting serious, man. Boy, are you still watching it? No, I'm, <gasps> I'm, I'm no, I'm watching. Sorry, oh, I'm too busy, too busy with the with I'm Trump. Not sure I would have recommended it if I'd known that's what you were going to use so it for. I did. So I did get about. Um, I put a picture of it on Instagram, and I got a, probably about thirty-five different DMs from people going, that is not what James intended for you to be watching on it. <laughs> and we, I did watch it, and let me tell you, that drama up big is even better. <laughs> we are now 26, 27 episodes into Married at First Sight. We were lamenting the short seasons last last month, last week. Uh, yeah. 26 episodes in. There's an episode pretty much every, every weeknight, and it's become... I I lock I clock off work about seven. I go downstairs and I sit and watch it. And it's my way to kind of de-stress and come back to the world after a working day. Can I ask a question? Mm. And I I realise I'm going to regret this, but I I may or may not have discovered a few things about this show in the past week. Now my understanding is there there was a 29 year old virgin on this yes. show. And was his name Matt? Was it Matt? Uh, yes, he was only in it for. Let me check. He was only in it for a couple of weeks. And what sold me on this is I was told they referred to him as 29-year-old virgin Matt, and then when he lost his virginity, he was 29-year-old former virgin Virgin Matt. And I was just like, this is amazing. Every time, yeah, Matt, so uh, every time they, and it it was rightly put, they were pulled up on it, every time they did a voiceover narration, spoke to him on camera, anything, they called him either the virgin, the ex-virgin, or the former virgin. This poor boy... But it's, I mean, it is dynamite this season. Um, uh, What I've been led to believe, though, is that the reason why this is the jewel in the crown of the Married at First Sight franchise is the Australianness of it elevates it to a whole other level. Yeah, so they're very kind of um, blunt, uh, quite aggressive at times. Um, The men are quite kind of, some of the men are very traditionally have a very traditional sense of masculinity the girls are all in their bandage dresses and their super straightened hair and it's there is a lot of shit going down um and it is huge huge amounts of drama high drama i would call it shakespearean even i would call it so if you are also watching it you know exactly what I'm talking about. And we all know exactly what's going to happen next week. And we can't wait to see it. Um, <laughs> and then the other thing I wanted to mention was the Trump show, um, mm. which actually may cross over slightly with a with maybe a question we might be answering this week. But the Trump show is incredible and very quickly turned around. I think it's been up for a couple of weeks. It's essentially a four-episode deconstruction, I suppose, of Trump's presidency. And 
they've gone right up to him leaving office. The last the last episode is called Downfall. Um, hmm. And what's kind of interesting about it is it isn't just straight documentary. They also have um, interviews. And it, you will either love this about it or hate it. I was quite um, taken aback at first, but you kind of go with it, which is they don't just kind of interview liberal talking heads and things like that. They interview um, Trump's closest allies. So in there, you do have Scaramucci, you have um, Rudy Giuliani, you have Steve Bannon, Farage. And when they first came on my telly, I was like, get the fuck off of my telly. Like, I can't bear them being given platforms. But as a kind of window into his thinking, especially things like Scaramucci, the mooch who can speak <laughs> now he's kind of on the other side can speak to what it was like it's a really interesting kind of insight into especially the final episode called downfall into his final few days is really interesting um and and what i would say is it's not like you know like when right-wing people are invited on radio for balance it's kind of not mm. they're not doing it for balance they're doing it to try and give a bit of a more complete picture and actually what those advisors even Steve, I mean, Steve Bannon, who makes my skin crawl, but you get an interesting perspective, I suppose, both on Trump's inner circle, but also the wider consequences, the global consequences, etc. So uh, I would massively recommend that. I cannot, weirdly, now that he's gone, uh, I thought I'd be like, I don't want to hear about him ever again. I don't want to talk about him. But um, I, I am kind of gobbling up different Trump documentaries at the moment and this is definitely one of the best this ones. This is the best one. This is the best best one I've seen so far. Okay. But I See, still I, feel I, like there's a better one to be made. I'm tempted to watch this because again I had that thing where when he was still in power, I could like the I had like some weird visceral reaction every time I saw his face. I had to turn mm. off the TV. I couldn't deal with it. Whereas now I feel I'm ready to, you know, yeah. explore it. I think there could be one it's quite big. it's on iPlayer and it's I suppose it's it is four episodes and they're like I think about 45 minutes an hour but i would argue that there's probably a more in-depth one to be done especially with a bit more of the passage of time because that fourth one they really did turn it around super quick so i think there may be i'm sure there are several on the go at the minute but um especially with as boyd said with the impeachment kind of happening the stories arguably not over yet yeah there's another there's another series um on bbc2 called i think it's called trump v the world mm. um which is uh, which is focusing on his foreign policy mm. <laughs> such as it such as it was and his um m- you know kind of maga philosophy and everything so there are so yeah there's that as well which i watched a bit of and is really interesting but i do think the trump show is the, is at the moment yeah. definitive as you say because and it, and those if you if you if you're going to get people who are actually there who witnessed him you know, behaving as he did, then you're going to have they're going to have to be right wing yeah. people, aren't they? Because they, he surrounded himself with with right wing lunatics, basically. So, yeah, it's fascinating watching that. I think there should be. I want in my dream world, you know, there's a kind of revival of a West Wing style drama that depicts a right wing mm. maniac like him, very very obviously based on him, but they fictionalise it so they can basically, but basically take you behind the scenes of of what went on, of the kind of, because I really want to know, like even, even the thing with the impeachment thing, what's so interesting is there's people, um, part of their evidence is people saying on the day while it was happening, Trump was thrilled. Yeah. And I want to see that dramatised. I want to see the fact that he was thrilled by these people well, invading the, yeah. the Capitol building and, the time and all that. Frame, you know. Right. So yeah. the most interesting thing this week, they, they pinpointed the time Trump sent the tweet calling Pence essentially a traitor and yeah. a coward. And yeah. 
him knowing that Trump, that Pence was in danger at that very point, he was being pursued by the yeah. mob. And it was a full two minutes after that tweet that they actually managed to get him to safety. And that, yeah, exactly, that's, you know, yeah. stuff like that. Yeah. And I read, yeah. I, and he, I read bits and bobs it, from his chief of staff in, mm. in New York Times and in different places. And when you start to hear those, and they're all quite separate at the moment, but the thought of those observations being brought together. Yeah, he called he called a Republican senator to try and um, delay the um, counting of the of the votes, etc. While the riot was happening, and he got the wrong person. He misdialed, and he got another guy instead. And that he, he this was it guy, four seasons total landscaping. <laughs> it was literally the and the guy literally had to hand over his phone to the, while they were cowering in the in the Senate to this other guy who Trump wanted to speak to. And then meanwhile, they're literally cowering from the mob in in fear of their lives and Trump's going can you just extend the vote thing can you just play oh it out my it is, things like that are absolutely incredible to see it can't yeah. I mean it can't be that far away right I mean I know what James is saying about it being too soon but also like if somebody's going no, to do it and and yeah, those people to, to all those done. things are, yeah. are kind of yeah. becoming part of public knowledge yeah. now yeah I don't yeah I think it has to be done quite soon exactly yeah, yeah. but let's be honest fake the wink saga season two first <laughs> yeah okay good of Glad course goes without Glad, saying Glad goes without saying yeah uh, right that is what we've been watching this week let's move on to this week's listener question and this week's listener question comes from Christine Quigley and she says with the seemingly exponential growth in long multi-part documentary series across various streaming services what are your recommendations for series that are worth watching all the way through her favorite incidentally is wild wild country on netflix which was very good i think making a murderer was was a you know was a big game changer to use that horrible um cliched word phrase um but it was i think because it's i think stories that, that they are the filmmakers kind of planted themselves right in the middle of that story the making a murderer story um stephen avery you know his wrongful um his wrongful conviction for something he didn't do and then being convicted of other crimes and the incredible state of um, the criminal justice system in America exposed from the local level in, you know, Wisconsin where, where he lived and where the crime took place. And then it kind of spins out into the whole system. And in the second season particularly, actually, which a lot of people didn't think was as good, but the second season is kind of feels more of a look at the flaws in the criminal justice. The, the American system is so rooted against acknowledging that miscarriages of justice can happen it's like you know it's like when it's where they're so obvious and basic they still will not deal with the whole idea of a miscarriage of justice and there's a whole you know kind of massive group of people working you know um the innocence project all these things to try and show that that people do get um get involved in miscarriage of justice that i think making a murderer dealt with all of that in an incredibly gripping way and it's a really long it's a pretty long series if you take the two seasons together and i think that that set the bar as a kind of netflix true crime thing made by people who plant themselves there they embed themselves with the people involved and they're filming absolutely everything as it's happening that that i think is an incredible series and my the other one i'd mention is um two actually once upon a time in iraq which is the bbc series last year Telling the story of the Iraq War from the from the point of view of the normal people, the day to day people who are involved, soldiers, um, translators, um, kind of low some politicians, but not like the ones you'd expect. And it was and that was an incredible achievement. A lot of people think that's like the best TV series of last year, you know, in any genre. It was incredible. And OJ Made in America, which is the five part 
documentary telling the O.J. Simpson story, putting it in the context of America at the time, of the racism in society, particularly in L.A., in, in California and in L.A., and how that affected the trial. And that's like a five-part. I think it's about eight hours altogether, and that is an incredible piece of filmmaking. And I, that's one of my favourite series of all time. And I might actually rewatch it again because I think it's on iPlayer for another few for another month or so, BBC iPlayer, and then I think it's coming off, so I think it's worth catching now um, while it's still there. Terry? Um, so like Boyd, I kind of went back to the beginnings of these and I took it to mean kind of um, documentary narrative series, right? As opposed to documentary films. Yeah. yeah? Okay, good. Yeah, um, long film, because you said long film series. Yes. Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, Making a Murderer, I also had as one of the kind of forerunners. And I tell you what I rewatched this weekend for no apparent reason. We reviewed it at the time, um, and I re- don't think we loved it, which was the Madeleine McCann Netflix documentary. Um, mm. That and the Amanda Knox, for me, are kind of of a similar ilk, which are quite controversial. Um, and I rewatched the Madeleine McCann pretty much all in one day um, wow. for some unknown reason. And it still makes me massively uncomfortable, and I'm still not a massive fan, so I don't know why I watched it. But <laughs> the other one I recently watched again, which I would really recommend, and I just think, and it's not quite a narrative documentary, but I'm going to say it anyway because it was a documentary series is um, the Jade Goody Channel 4 documentary. So Jade, the reality star who changed Britain, which told her story from Big Brother to becoming famous to um, her going on Celeb to Big Brother, the massive controversy about her um, uh, being racist towards Shilpachetti, then the fallout from that, her going to Big Brother India, becoming ill, um, her kind of rehabilitation in many senses when she was ill, and then really the way she kind of died in the public eye. And what I loved about this documentary, and I think we all loved it at the time, well, me and, me and Boyd, obviously, was <laughs> yeah. it's not just a story of this one girl, her her fairly short and controversial life. It, it does what all the documentaries do, which is it broadens out the scope to actually really place it within context and look at class in Britain looking at kind of how reality TV gave a platform to people of a working class background. Um, It really looked at, you know, the kind of dissolution even of a nuclear family and how, and the consequences of that in later life, the reality TV um, explosion, what that did to people, how that meant, you know, she in many respects felt she should die almost on television on the front pages really interesting kind of meditation really on fame on a very specific type of fame and really you know the story came back down to for me it came down to class and and opportunities in this country for people like jay goody um and so i you know i haven't watched that since the time and i think it really really fucking stands up as as a, a really brilliant look at a particular time in british culture and the people who dominated it. Um, if you haven't watched it, if you didn't watch it at the time, it's still on um, uh, all four, 4OD, OB, DD, whatever it's <laughs> called these days. It's on there. All four. Just watch it all. Honestly, it's so fucking brilliant. Like, so emotional. So, um, you know, she became a figure of fun for years, and people took the piss out of her and vilified her, sometimes rightly, you know, the racist... Um, 
abuse she gave to Shilpachetti was absolutely unforgivable and unexcusable, but inexcusable, sorry. But um, I think it shows empathy for uh, people from working class backgrounds. It shows empathy for somebody who completely lived their life and all their mistakes in the public eye. Um, and I just think it's fascinating on, on British pop culture, um, if anything else. And that got me thinking about empathy in documentaries. And so I wanted to mention Leaving Neverland, um, which is one of the most controversial, arguably, documentaries, I mean, ever. I mentioned it once on Twitter and <laughs> mentioned oh, believing yeah. the two boys who are now men. They and their families obviously spoke extensively about about what they suffered. And I was besieged by Michael Jackson hardcore fans who spend, I think from what I could tell, all day, every day on the internet finding people like me who might say something about Michael Jackson and uh, uh, screaming abuse at us. But I thought that that documentary showed how things like sexual abuse can be handled with real empathy and um, a care of touch. Oh, no, that's the wrong phrase. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> with real with real empathy and care and what i also thought was important was it was actually quite graphic in terms of what it described and what it related about what they'd endured and i i'm really interested in this and in about palatability and and about what people will um uh allow themselves to hear on television i think that did that job really well it really showed the reality of what they've been through but it also treated them as human beings with real empathy and that's my list. It occurred to me when I selected this question that I have absolutely nothing to contribute to it whatsoever. <laughs> oh, my God. Wow. wow. I don't watch documentary series. I don't like documentary series. We've As reviewed we some of them. Week. I've appreciated some of them, but I've never carried on watching any of them. Oh, my God. Because it's just oh my not God. my bag. I just, you know, don't get me wrong. I, I I love that there's lots of information in them and I find them quite interesting. But, you know, there are fairies having adventures out there right now. And frankly, <laughs> that demands my attention. What is wrong and with I don't you? Know what to tell you? What is wrong with you? Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. And I have a theory, right? I have a theory that we that always... That it's a demon? A dancing demon? Sorry. <laughs> I have a theory that we always end up with a shit question. No offence to people who've sent in their questions. But I've got a theory that we end up with shit questions because you choose the question that's most relevant to you and you like watch the most boring stuff. So we usually end up with a question that Boyd and I can't answer and you spend ages going, well, I think you're fine. <laughs> and, and what you've done this week is actually chose a good question which Boyd and I are really engaged in. And yeah. you have nothing to say. I've addressed the balance. <laughs> I mean- also, you've never, you don't watch any documentary Look, series. The thing with me, Boyd, is I have a very short attention span. <laughs> well, like, if you're going to give me true. information in a documentary, make it fucking 90 minutes. Like, give me all the information boiled down and get it into my brain. I cannot be titting around for seven hours to get the information you're trying to give me. I'd rather read it in a book. It's the same reason like when I go on a website to read news. Like, I, I find it maddening when, <laughs> oh, here's a, here's a video, watch a video. You just noticed now. You just noticed now. Yeah, like, how are you talking. noticing now that yeah. I talk at stupid speed? I mean, I mean more than usual. <laughs> <laughs> I've turned into Scatman, John. It's true. But, um, but no, you have but a I... massive attention span when it comes to like 
little creatures ah, and elves fairies. and That's fairies. Different. And, that is why? different. Because yeah, I can just kind of immerse myself in this world they've you can created immerse and become part fucking... of the narrative. I can't. I can't access documentary content oh. in the same way. I do. I can watch it, but I watch it in a very different way, why? and it requires a different type of attention. Why? Uh, and I yeah, find why? it. I struggle with it slightly. You. You. I think you think about these things too much. It's I like mean, it's, 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 not, it's storytelling. It's storytelling. It's not the it's same. Narrative. It is the same. No, no, it's no, literally okay, the same. Okay, okay. Apart no. from the fact that you know one is true and the other isn't yeah. it's the same it's filmmaking it's storytelling it's characters it's it's telling you evolving narratives well, what's the, it's no it's that, no it, it is different and i know oh. you you are absolutely right it is storytelling but it's a different type of storytelling well, like when we do arc, journalism, when we but the narrative arc can still be this can still be here's the thing whether yeah. it's fictional or non-fiction <laughs> The way you build that story out and tell that story and the arc can be identical, apart from yeah, you know exactly. what is true. I disagree, and I don't think it's about whether it's true ah, or not true. Ah. Literally, also, yeah, also, ah. listeners, James is literally wagging his finger, like, literally wagging his finger. No, 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 no. <laughs> like there is a type of story which is kind of sent at you which is like projected at you which is what this is so it's kind of like it's lean back and take it storytelling and then there is a kind of storytelling that draws you into a narrative which is like a world that it creates for you that you can inhabit as i've talked about many times uh for the duration of that show and documentary stuff i can't project into it i have to it, it comes at me like it's a different type of information flow <laughs> and i just find i have slightly less patience for it that is such bullshit, it is bullshit. Like, <laughs> i'm gonna no, don't it's, make it's me tell you best. about the different types of stories in storytelling. Like. <laughs> That is ridiculous. The, the, the thing is, almost the whole point of the question is that these are examples that do draw you in. You know, the people versus the O.J. Simpson, sorry, the O.J. Simpson one, are you interested in that whole case? Were you even vaguely interested in aware oh, of the I'm O.J. familiar with the events. Right. Did you watch the the people versus O.J. Simpson, the drama about it? What, the American Crime Story? Yeah, no, weirdly, Crime that Story. is one that I have never seen. I've never oh seen God. American Crime well, Story. That's a brilliant show, right? But the, the documentary does literally create show you the world of that was happening that was going on at that point and it kind of takes its time um in an incredibly compelling way to set the scene and to create the world if you like of that that was then the backdrop to this unbelievable event the the, the arrest that oj simpson murdering someone and being tried for it <laughs> yeah um this and 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 so it is. This, it really is the same storytelling wise. That's the whole point, really. That it's using the same methods as a fictional drama. That's what makes these shows. That's why this this person, our our, our listener, is asking this Christine. question. Yeah, yes. Christine. See, I think it just comes down to that you and I, and probably so we just we experience these things in different ways. Like the way that we've talked about before, where you can kind of do multiple things at once. If you're watching a show, you can be writing something or reading something. You told me last week you literally watched two shows at once, which is some crazy next level <laughs> shit. I can't even get yeah. my head around. I mean, that <laughs> but, was a rarity. But but, but I'm I don't watch like, everything like that. My brain doesn't work that way. Like I'm very single track. Like I cannot multitask. When I'm watching a show, the whole world disappears that somewhere is else. Not so I think true. It, it is. 100% true. I cannot do more than one thing at once. As you will know, Terry, for every meeting you've ever been with me, when you've been like, James, come on, come back to us. Hello, hello, because I've been doing something else. But that's irrelevant anyway. You can still watch, watch, watch focus on the thing then, focus on the documentary series in the same way you're focusing on the uh, witch you know, saga. Okay, guys, guys, I'm just going to cut to the chase here because we all know what's going on, don't we? We all know what's going on and I'll tell you what's going on. Snobbery and elitism. James Dyer views documentary because of its populist use in recent years. 
James views yeah. it as a working class piece of television. <laughs> what the fuck? I'm sorry. When I'm advocating fate the wink song yeah, over mean... making a murderer, I'm not sure you can accuse me of elitism. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. If fate the wink saga is not the most middle class load of tosh I've ever heard, <laughs> no. I don't know what is. Are you telling me there is an... It is actually very middle class. Are you telling me there isn't a tiny bit... Of, of anti-populist, anti-mass market, anti—is there a bit of snobbery? If not class snobbery, then maybe arts snobbery. There, there may be, a, there may be a, an anti-populist thing. Like yes. when everyone was going on about Tiger King, and I was just like, "Fuck you! I'm never watching that." Yes, admittedly, there may be a. But then, you know, if if I'd heard the Wink Saga was popular before now, that probably would have got me into it. So I'm not immune to, you know, if something's good, something's but good. You like, okay? I don't, I don't want this to turn into a deconstructed <laughs> James Dyer. Therapy. But let's do it. That would be a good documentary series, yeah. right? I think that you like niche. <laughs> And you like genre and you like anti-populist because you think that reflects back something about you and your ability to see something great that maybe not everybody can see. And I think you also think that kind of gives you an intellectual edge. I would say superiority. Yeah, do you know what? I'm going to say superiority. That's why I think, because I think you like belonging to a small gang of people who are united by a, a depth of understanding of a specific thing. And I don't know if you can get that from documentaries. You are right. I, I definitely think that my my love for the Winxers gives me an intellectual <laughs> edge of everyone else. <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> oh, well, but you know what I mean about sci-fi and your sci-fi-ness? Don't you think there's an element I, of that? I think, I think. Oh, yeah, one that's of, definitely true. Yeah. No, seriously, <laughs> I disagree. I think, I think that one of the reasons that this, this our dynamic on this podcast works is because, Terry, you are as big a niche nerd as I am. It's, yeah. just, it's in a complete, it's all different coloured anoraks. Like, you're in a completely different side of the spectrum to I am. I'm sitting here, <laughs> possibly poor choice of words. Mm. <laughs> but I'm just saying, like, you know, I'm here with my spaceships and my fairies and all that sort of stuff. And you're there with your, you know, Don jackets and your track marks and your rehab like you know, that's that's the kind of drama you like like oh yeah and don't get me wrong like as much as i have a populist um bent i also enjoy nothing more than knowing about some small tiny british film um by a filmmaker that nobody's heard of that shows a slice of life that most people can't tend to stomach that puts me right in my element <laughs> Hashtag the greasy strangler. <laughs> well, right, like, and and I'm sure there's an element of me that's like, well, that makes me intellectually superior because I can see the genius in this film and this filmmaker that other people can't see. Absolutely, and if everyone in the office, for example, looked at you askance, it's not like you would ever, I don't know, double down entirely and force us all to run like a twenty-page feature on it or something. <laughs> But you, you, you also hold back on things like not watching things. I think for a similar reason, like the not watching because I like them. No, 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 because everyone else likes them. Yeah, I think because everyone else likes. Yeah, so them, Harry interesting. Potter, right? Yeah, yeah. I, uh, I probably shouldn't say this when we have an issue, <laughs> issue of Empire, which will be in the world when this podcast goes out with a massive Harry Potter exclusive in it. But the Harry Potter, I said more than once, why would I read? Why would I watch a film yeah. based on a book that's for kids? God, you're such a Slytherin. If I get on the tube one more time and see a fully grown man with a Harry Potter book, I'm going to throw myself out the window. I have a massive snobbery about that stuff. Yeah, yeah. And about stuff that I see as like, 
Every, do you know what it is? It's stuff that I think everybody engages with but doesn't properly spend time with. And that's not based on <laughs> hang anything. On, hang on. <laughs> so your that's issue brilliant. is not that people read Harry Potter. It's that you believe they're reading it but not truly intellectually engaging yeah. with the narrative. Yeah, which makes me a terrible snob. Like, <laughs> You're worse than I am. How are we even having this conversation? <laughs> you see, Boyd is the only one who's the decent human being out of the three of us. Mm, I mean, yeah. Thanks. Yes, yes. But what I don't understand, going back to the... the, the you liked um, Can't Get You Out of My Head, the, yes, um, the Adam Curtis thing. and. Yeah. That it's documentary making mm. yeah. at its purest form. It's it's yeah. it's you know, and that's I very much song. enjoyed the first and only episode of that. Yeah, that I watched. Oh, you are not going to watch any more of that, are oh you? I was God. thinking about it. It was great, and I recommend people watch it. I think it's great, but again, it's like not being funny. It's like it's like eight hours. It's not happening. Like I need I need the, it's the not condensed version. It's I don't have eight hours to spend I've got on this. Sixteen hours of fairies to watch. Yeah. I'm not going to watch right? eight hours. That's going to shake yeah. my belief in modern society and culture. I want fairies. <laughs> so just Look. to just to confirm, James, you, there's no documentary series that you have watched beyond like one episode. I mean, I don't want to conform to my stereotype on this but podcast, but I don't think there is. Wow, that is incredible. So like this whole genre is like comedy. It, yeah. No, I'm not watching comedy. Although in the end, you do watch comedy. Um, it's oh my god, it's incredible. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Sorry, Christine. I've got to be honest. I blame you for all of this yeah yeah i think this is is good look here's here's the answer christine the answer is boyd's the only one who's a real human being james and i are dreadful i think that was answers your question about documentary anyone who listens to this podcast is already kind of aware of that yeah boyd is the vox populi and we are polar opposite hateful people yeah we are dreadful Oh, excellent. I mean, one more, well, actually, I just thought of one more show to mention. Thank the you, Last boy. Dance, the Last Dance, the um, the Chicago Bulls, the Last Dance, um, Netflix, the Last Dance, <laughs> last Michael dance. Jordan, <laughs> Michael Jordan, um, Chicago Bulls, Netflix, ten hours, amazing, yeah, ten That's hours the, of the Chicago yeah, Bulls, incredible. I mean, incredible. honestly, yeah, I mean, honestly, indeed, honestly, Dennis <laughs> honestly. <laughs> honestly, I have to say, I, so, I never wish this um, podcast was uh, videoed. Filmed oh, because, yes. yeah. because by Friday morning, none of us are looking our best, especially me. <laughs> but I really wish everyone had been able to see the James finger wagging because the honestly, finger wagging was amazing. It was that peak. was absolutely it amazing. Was the I don't think headmaster. Yeah. Because finger wagging is literally a phrase that people use to describe what James does. Yeah. You know, to actually see it in- literally happening. Yeah, it was incredible. Um, I don't think I've ever seen anyone finger wag before. No. Like Sorry, you missed a chance to Instagram that. I'm just saying. No, because you were so like taken aback because it was like proper posh person finger wagging as well. Mm. Is that what your house master did? Did your, Probably. Did your house master like, do that My to you? My house master. House <laughs> master. Oh, God. Right. Thank you, Christine, for that. If you have any kind of question that you would like to, you know, use as some kind of gateway for me to have abuse on this podcast, then feel free to send it to us at Pilot TV Pod on Twitter or at me at James C. Dyer on Twitter or Instagram. Right. After that, I think we all need a quick break. So let's listen to this advert type thing now. Okay, shall we move on to some news? Now, the news this week can only begin 
with the most exciting piece of casting that has happened in a very long time. And it is, of course, that Bella Ramsey and Pedro Pascal will be playing Ellie and Joel in The Last of Us on HBO. I am stoked. I am psyched. I am here for this. I can't possibly tell you how exciting this is. But I also like the fact that it is it is furthering the, and we've talked about this on Empire, the Pedro Pascal reluctant parent cinematic universe, which is uh which is nice. So yeah, this is this is exciting stuff, which clearly neither of you give a shit about. Well I just meet him myself. Why? <laughs> Because I have nothing to say. <sighs> oh my god! It is a massive deal, isn't it? This. I mean, I've never played the game, so it's not. Yeah. It doesn't. Tell it doesn't James, a, for the yes. uninitiated. Tell us. Yes. Tell, tell us. us. Hang on. I feel like I'm being mocked in some way. You're no, expressing no, an interest seriously. in something I like. This is not normal behaviour. No, seriously. Go um, on. Tell us. Oh, well. If I must, so cast your minds back. No, I'm kidding. Uh, so, uh, so yeah. So, The Last of Us is a uh, a game, and the narrative is it takes place in a kind of near future where what's happened is a a you know the you know that fungus that zombie fungus which kills ants and then takes over their bodies. Have you heard about this? It's actually a real thing no. in the animal kingdom. It's a fungus, and it kills the ant and then animates the ant's body to make it do things. That was the inspiration for The Last of Us, and the idea is is that the, there are zombies, but they are taken over by a fungus, and the fungus controls them, and then they spread this disease. So people live in these walled cities uh, and this guy Joel ends up for reasons we won't go into in care of a 14 year old girl called Ellie and he has to take her across America to get her somewhere for reasons um, and the whole thing is it's about because the prologue for this is incredible uh, it's an emotional journey it's all about him causing her to open up her healing the wounds in him and the emotional resonance of this story is like no other video game ever made which is why it is the best video game ever made it is so poignant and so profound and so affecting and then there has been a sequel which was controversial but i also think is amazing um but these characters are amazing they're played by troy baker and ashley johnson in the game uh, and their, their performances in that i think are going to be really hard to top so i'll be interested to see what this does but what will make this work and i think and people talk a lot about how why do video game adaptations generally not work on screen i think part of that is is that video games aren't really structured narratively the way that films are and to a certain extent the way tv shows are and oftentimes you know you're playing a game and that papers over holes in narrative or narrative weaknesses whereas this the narrative in this game is so strong it is so strong it is the strongest game narrative in my opinion ever i think this will be a fantastic series and the fact that you've got craig mason who's adapting it who did chernobyl the fact that you've got i mean bella ramsey it's fucking liana mormont terry it's liana mormont who was your fucking spirit animal in the one episode of game of thrones or whatever it is that you watched you should <laughs> you should be here for that sure mm. yeah but it is a video it's a video game adaptation it is but it's great look at that facial he's, he's look, gonna, at that, look at that elitism <laughs> look at that snobbishness <laughs> i see what you're doing there Tell, okay stop it, it, it would be fair to say that video games traditionally do not have the best record in terms of adaptation into yeah, cinematic material right we have probably hmm. run in my in my five and a half years at empire <laughs> seven features called this is the the one that's actually going <laughs> to yeah, be yeah. really good yeah, yeah. None of them have but, been really good. But there are there are either stories that are kind of a little bit sort of lazily adapted from like the game stories they're based on are often very thin and they are turned into something which is equally thin. Um because I do think so so I was talking to Nick Sandlin the other day, he was playing a video game and I pointed out it was, was uh, it? one of the video games. Yes, he was playing a game where it's one of the games that he likes where it's like an interactive story where you don't really do a lot of playing, you just essentially follow the story and there's not much you do. <clears throat> Telltale games. Um but 
I said to him, like, you're just watching a, a, a sub-average TV show. Like, if this was just on YouTube, you wouldn't watch it. So what is it about just holding the controller and pressing one button occasionally that makes this story somehow more engaging? He said, I don't know, it just does. And he's right. But you take that and you put it on a screen and you play it out, and no one cares because it's just not strong enough. I think this game is different. I think these characters are unbelievable. And I think the story is so potent uh, that, I, I, yeah, I think this would be fantastic. I really do. So this is, without doubt, the TV show I am most excited about. Mm. Wow. Wow. Yes. Mm. And we will obviously dedicate many, many podcasts to me explaining to you in excruciating detail why it's great once it comes out. Which is when? Well, I think they're filming it soon, so I think it's going to be, I'm, I, my guess is next year, I think. I yeah, think, I, would, yeah. I, would, I would think so. It won't yeah. be any time, you know, instantly. Pedro Pascal's fucking busy, though, isn't he? He is very busy. He is yeah. very busy. Um, what else has been happening in the world? Terry, any... Buffy news you want to share with us? Yeah, so let's just uh, address the um, elephant in the room, which is uh, Joss Whedon. So this week, Charisma Carpenter um, put out a statement, would we say? Well, a couple of screenshots, which was essentially a statement on her relationship, her professional relationship with Joss Whedon, focusing on her time on Buffy and then on Angel. And there'd been a couple of things she said over the years about, especially about her becoming pregnant and there being some kind of problem um, with her being pregnant and how that impacted her leaving the show. And she put out a full statement, which essentially said that, you know, he was unprofessional, um, uh, kind of emotionally abusive, that he did punish her in effect for being pregnant. I think she said he asked her if she was going to keep it when she went to tell him the news. Um, And she was supported by several members of the Buffy cast. Sarah Michelle Gellar put out a, a kind of fairly, I suppose, circumspect statement in which she said she stands by all uh, victims of abuse. She's proud of them for speaking out, but she's not going to be making any further comment. Um, And that while she will forever be thrilled to have her name associated with Buffy, she doesn't want it associating with Joss Whedon. And this, like the reaction to this was, I mean, huge, right? Because Buffy does still resonate so much, especially for people our age. Um, I was in my teens so i remember watching it do my a-levels and at university obviously buffy was always celebrated for its kind of feminist principles how it empowered young women and i think what a lot of people have said is how betrayed they feel that while joss was being celebrated for being a a showrunner who really maybe also shared those feminist ideals that this was going on uh, behind the scenes because it was Amber Benson, mm-hmm. obviously backed up Chris Carpenter, Michelle Trachtenberg also posted yeah. in response to this. It's very, it's just, it, look, let's be honest, it's really upsetting. And obviously it's not the first um, uh, accusations that have been levelled at Whedon. We, this all started really because of Ray Fisher, who mm. had said that he was also unprofessional and inappropriate on the set of uh, the Justice League. And this is kind of where it all be- began and, and Charisma hashtag I stand with Ray Fisher. And she did say that she's been helping with the Warner Brothers investigation to exactly what happened um, with Ray Fisher and with, with other members of the cast. So it's it's kind of awful to think that this was going on for decades behind the scenes and people were too scared to talk out. She, she says at the end how she's still, which I found most upsetting actually, that she's still scared of speaking out and she's still worried 
that there'll be consequences. And that's what Hollywood, arguably, is often thrived upon, which is the, pow- the power imbalance that men like Joss Whedon have, that showrunners, directors, also execs. She, um, Ray Fisher claimed it went all the way up to two execs at Warner Brothers who kind of el- allowed him and enabled him to behave like this. And that for, for two decades they felt unable to talk about it publicly for fear of being blacklisted, for fear of not getting work, for fear of not being able to do their job. And it's kind of upsetting that that's, it's taken something like Me Too, which I think you can trace this back to, for people to be able to talk out, not just about um, sexual assault and rape, of which there isn't any of those accusations around Joss, but more to the great power imbalance that's always been built into TV shows and films, um, often run by men. And that, that's gone on for so long and has gone on presumably for generations before that. It's it's great that people are finally able to to feel they can speak out, but even still in this in 2021 to still feel terrified of of the consequences of speaking out i think is is something quite significant yeah i agree because it gets to a point i guess when someone gets to a level of fame they are somewhat insulated from the consequences of speaking out but when you are not at that level it's very precarious when you are a ray fisher or i guess a, a charisma carpenter you are vulnerable to repercussions from powerful people this is how harvey weinstein kept people quiet, yeah. wasn't it you know um and uh, Whedon isn't the only one who's been under fire this week. Gina Carano was fired from The Mandalorian this week as well for making uh, the latest in, let's be honest, a series of ill-advised social media posts. Uh, this one referencing the Holocaust. But uh, Lucasfilm vocally distanced themselves from uh, from Gina Carano, saying that she does not work for them and they have no plans to work with her in future. So, and let's uh, be no clear, more Cara Dune. you know, there's, there's some, there's some uh, backlash online from conservative uh, people saying, "Oh, she's been fired for being a conservative. She's been been well, and and we should be careful of the word fired because, as you say, the statement said we we're not working with her and we haven't got any plans. But yeah. people felt that her comments were anti-Semitic." Yeah, I do not believe it was this post. I do think that uh, this was the last straw in this in this situation. I, she posted a number of times about Black Lives Matters and uh, you know conspiracy theory mongering about the election and all sorts of things. Uh, and I think she was becoming increasingly problematic for them. So it does seem like this was uh, this was a while coming. But no more Cara Dune in the Mandalorian. So and presumably not in Legend of the Rangers either. So what else is going on? <laughs> Let's keep it controversial, shall we? Go on, Boyd. Um, my, Hit me with uh, your controversy. The For me, the, one of the most surprising announcements of the week uh, was that HBO is making a series about called Alan versus Farrow, a documentary series um, probing the um, Woody Allen, Mia Farrow um, situation. Yeah, do you know about this? Yeah. yeah. Wow. It's a, yeah, a four-part documentary series. It's actually arriving on HBO in America um, February 21st, which is quite soon. So they've been making this for a while. Um, uh, directed by Kirby Dick and Amy Ziering, who are experienced documentary makers. Um, the series probes sexual assault allegations made against Woody Allen by his daughter Dylan Farrow, of course, when she was seven, that whole saga. Um, now, interestingly, the, it will, this, the series will include access to Mia Farrow, Dylan Ronan Farrow, who's become a big campaigning journalist, of course, investigative journalist, um, etc., and not Woody Allen. So it seems, strikes me as being fairly clear you know, the kind of, um, the point of view that it's coming from. It's definitely not, put it that way, this way, coming from <laughs> Woody Allen's point of view and that he's clearly not taking part in it. So, but I'm fascinated by that. I mean, I, you know, I'm a huge Woody Allen fan. I'm fascinated by the whole story. I was, at the time, I was absolutely, um, you know, I read Mia Farrow's book about it. 
So yeah, I'm fascinated. No one's announced yet. Now, no, all, all HBO documentaries, as far as I'm aware, are are um, and most of them end up on Sky, and Sky have an HBO first look deal, and they yeah. pretty much take every single major series that HBO makes. I haven't had any confirmation yet from Sky that they're showing this one, and I wonder whether there might be a legal issue here because the American mm-hmm. legal laws about libel that are much vaguer than the British ones. Yes. So there's stuff that, you know, Mia Farrow could say stuff in this documentary that you'd never, you would not be able to necessarily get away with Bridget in, in Britain. So I wonder whether that might be an issue. I don't know. That's complete speculation on my part. But it's interesting that hasn't been announced yet that Sky are taking it. Yeah, because in, in America, you have to show an, in, you there has to be a malicious intent. Yeah. So you have to know that what you're broadcasting is false at the time of broadcasting it, right. whereas in the UK, just the very fact if it's proven to be false, is enough. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I look forward to not watching that documentary. Yeah, yeah talking of things you won't watch for all kinds of reasons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, do you see Brooklyn Nine-Nine is yeah. going to be ending after its upcoming eighth season? That's caused a bit of a hoo-ha online. A lot of Brooklyn Nine-Nine stands out there saying it's the only good sitcom. That seems a bit harsh and patently untrue, but it does have a lot of fans. Well, currently, there are, I said this last week, there are fewer and fewer American primetime sitcoms. And if this mm. is yeah. part of that. I mean, they are kind of, it's almost like they're dying off. It is weird how, how, you know, there aren't that many now, particularly ones that then end up coming to UK television and being, you know, and, and becoming a phenomenon. Um, so it is, you know, it's definitely a thing, I think. Uh, Boydie, yeah. I actually had a question for you, which is my, oh, yeah. um, my Twitter timeline and, and Facebook feed have been full of people talking about this Britney Spears documentary yeah. which is about yeah. the conservatorship she's still under you know she still is under a conservatorship of her father which actually overnight um became a joint conservatorship from somebody from her team she's seeking to have her father removed and yeah. um there's obviously been a lot of the free britney activity which is people questioning why it's very rare for somebody to be under a conservatorship as a grown adult for so long i think it's been 13 years or definitely over a decade and there seems to be confusion about how and if and when we can see it in the UK. Yeah, yeah, I don't know. No one has announced, as far as I'm aware, there's been no announcement that anyone is showing it in the UK, which is incredible when you consider, yeah, mm. it's a huge, it's already a huge phenomenon. So it's an FX um, Hulu show in America made by the New York Times production company. Mm. Um, and I've watched bits of it, yeah. But it is, it, it has, someone has to show it, yeah. But I haven't seen any confirmation yet that anyone is showing it officially. Um, but I can't wait to see it. Absolutely fascinating. I went to the courthouse in LA when um, there was a hearing about the conservatorship, whatever it is called, um, back in the day, back in, must have been 15 years ago, something like that. Yeah, well, I made a documentary about Britney Spears, about the paparazzi following Britney Spears to mm. Sky. Um, and and it was wild, yeah. Just the whole scene of the people camping outside the courthouse, the photographers, the press, the thing. It was incredible stuff. Yeah. So I can't, yeah, I have to see this film. I'm, I'm literally reading. I didn't know anything about this. It's everywhere. Oh, oh James. Ev- literally everybody is talking about it. I know. Have you I heard know anything about it? James, Britney Spears is a pop star <laughs> who... Um, <laughs> Don't knock it. I've met Britney Spears. What did you say to her? I interviewed her for Crossroads. Amazing. (laughs) Oh, my God. Did you ask her about yourself? (laughs) I did ask her. There's a show coming out called The Expanse. I wonder if you're planning to watch it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, God. Um, What else have we got news-wise? House of the Dragon is starting production in the spring. That's not massive news, but I'm quite excited about it. But David Benioff and D.B. Weiss have have teamed up with Netflix for The Overstory, which is going to be their next show. And it is, and I quote, a sweeping, 
impassioned work of activism and resistance that is also a stunning evocation of the natural world. Uh, it tells the story of a world alongside ours that is vast, interconnected, resourceful, magnificently inventive, and almost invisible to us. A handful of disparate people learn how to see that world and are drawn in to its unfolding catastrophe. Now, if any show was more James Dyer, I don't know what it is. <laughs> Could have fairies. That would probably make it more me, but you know. What about the power? This. The power feels like quite a James Dyer show. Hang on, this is this is not the power colon ghost book what saga thing that we reviewed. <laughs> no, 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 no. This is about this is the one. This is the big Amazon Prime series. Naomi yeah. Alder, you we've talked yeah. about this, James. It's the book. You, yes. you've read this book. Yeah, you've we've read talked this. about oh, yeah. this. But there are, to be fair, there is powers. There is power book two, whatever it is. Like, there's a lot of shows with this title. But this, oh. yeah. So this is based on the book, The Power, which yes, I have read. Yeah, it's a world in which all teenage girls, so I understand yes. it, suddenly develop the power to electrocute people at will. Yes, well, basically, it's, that. it's, it's an it's, amazing book. Yeah, it's an amazing book. Essentially, what would happen? There's a theory that power always corrupts, mm-hmm. and that actually. Power corrupting isn't about gender, as in all men, you know, all men with power are corrupt. It's that all people with power are corrupt. And if women also had the physical dominance and the ability to overpower men and the ability to be the ones in power, would we just behave as badly as you motherfuckers? Basically. And she says uh, yes. <laughs> have you read the book yeah. as well? Yes. Ter- oh, yeah. Yeah. it was Barack Obama's favorite book of the year that it came uh, out. Okay. But it's, it is, it's, it's not, I mean, it's not an easy read. It's quite harrowing in places but it's it is it is fascinating exactly that it's looking at how you know if the power balance were swung mm. how you know what would happen because obviously a lot of people often say well if women were charged the world women were in charge the world would be a much better place this book has a different idea so anyway the reason i brought it up is because there's more casting news on it this week i didn't oh, just tell bring me, it up boy, randomly who? um rob delaney oh, is right. in, from yeah and and alice eve and they are playing um uh news anchors so on the tv so yes they're, the, yeah, so he's Tom, who's a news anchor, and she is his co-anchor, Kristen. Mm. Um, and they're joining previously announced Leslie Mann, John Leguizamo, Tohib Jimmo, um, uh, Eddie Marzan, etc. Tom Tim Robbins, mm. Rain Wilson, star-studded. It's a massive. I think it's one of Amazon Prime's biggest ever projects. Apart from it'll Lord be of, huge. It will be Lord huge. Fucking rings, yeah. <laughs> Apart from the fucking <laughs> when, when is this coming to Amazon, boy? I think it's coming to Amazon. Well, I believe they're filming now. Yes, they are. Um, so again, yeah, they're filming now. So it's going to be a very earliest end of the year, but probably next year, I think. Um, I'm just saying, if the theme tune isn't by Snap, they've missed a trick. <laughs> oh. What else is happening in the world? Kira <laughs> uh, Knightley is no longer in the Essex Serpent, the Apple TV Plus show. She's now been replaced by Claire Danes. Hmm. What else is happening? Um, oh, yes, the Harry Potter TV show has been denied once again. HBO have officially said there are no Harry Potter series in development at the studio or on the streaming platform. So they have disavowed it, which probably means mm. it's going to be out in a month. Yeah. Anything else? I Well, I'm the only one of us that's going to be very, exci- very excited by the uh, com- confirmation that Matt Berry's Toast of London which was a Channel 4 series for three <laughs> glorious series about the terrible actor Stephen Toast and his um, showbiz world. They're, they're, it's moving to BBC. The BBC have commissioned um, Toast of Tinseltown, in which Stephen Toast moves to LA and tries to make it there. And I could not be happier. And I love the character. I mm. love Matt Berry in this. It's written by Matt Berry and Arthur Matthews, who wrote, um, obviously, wrote with Graham Linehan, their father, Ted, etc. And um, I can't fucking wait. Yeah, so I'm very Will excited Will it feature Clem Fandango? I, well, it'd be interesting what they do with Clem Fandango. Yeah, my guess is, I mean, they have, I, I hope they do. Maybe Clem somehow has already moved to LA as well. 
working on um, voiceover from the voiceover booth in LA, or maybe they'll just go to the voiceover booth, as you can do, of course, um, anywhere in the world. And Stephen can be in LA and he can go back to doing his voiceovers um, over the line to Clem Fandango. <laughs> oh, God. Um, McGee is making a True Lies TV series. Uh, oh, which God. on CBS, which seems like an ill-conceived endeavour, but uh, but that is apparently going ahead. Obviously, it's not the first time that McGee has jumped on a James Cameron property because he did Terminator Salvation in 2009. And who can forget that? <laughs> what else is happening in the world? Oh, did either of you ever watch the 4400 way, way, way back in the day? No? No. no. Okay, now this would have been... I'm going to go out... It's early noughties, I would say. 2003, 2004, something like that. And it was uh, a bunch of people, 4,400 to be fair, had disappeared on a day and vanished. And Uh, then they come back sometime later and it's how they've all changed and whatnot. Uh, Mahershala Ali was actually in this. Uh, And Billy Campbell and a bunch of other people. But uh, yes, that is being remade. Um, Paramount have also said, because we were talking about Yellowstone the other week, that Yellowstone is getting a prequel series called Y1883, also created by uh, by Taylor Sheridan, who uh, who does Yellowstone. Oh, 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 there's one other thing I want to mention. Redwall. Did either of you read Redwall when you were kids? No, no it sounds isn't, isn't dreadful. The the, isn't the Redwall the bit of the north of England that's voted Tory in the, <laughs> that's right, the last yeah. election? That's what this is about. It's a metaphor right. for that. Okay. No, it's about mice. It's like it's like little <laughs> sentient mice. mice. It's, it's, um, it's about a mouse monk, and he lives at Redwall Abbey, and there's an wow. evil mouse called Clooney the Scourge. Um, and there's a, there's a series of it. There's like 20, 25 of these books written by Brian Jacks. Uh, and they, I think they've been adapted before, but they're being adapted to uh, Netflix are doing it as a film, which is going to be the first book, Redwall, and then an ongoing uh, series. Uh, which are going to cover the rest of them. So if you want talking mice, is Red Wolf has thing? you covered. So technically, but it's quite dark and a bit grim. Okay. So I think okay. it's probably, you know, maybe it's got a Wink Saga vibe. I don't know. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I think it's it's not like kiddie kiddie. It might be more sort of teen aimed. But I assume it's going to be animated, you know, unless they've hired a team of <laughs> monk mice to star in this, which seems unlikely. Wow. Do we have any other news you would like to share? Absolutely not. Okay, brilliant. That is it for what's been happening in the world of TV this week. So now let's move on to this week's reviews. And first up this week, we have Behind Her Eyes, a Netflix adaptation of the best-selling book by Sarah Pinborough, which stars Simona Brown as Louise, a single mother who, after a wild night out, stumbles into an affair with her new boss while simultaneously striking up an odd friendship with his wife, which is precisely as messy as it sounds. Only there's a lot more going on here than just that. Isn't that right, Terry? I mean, I don't know about a wild night out. She gets stood up by her mate and accidentally <laughs> spills her drink on a man's white shirt in the most stereotypical, um, unconvincing meat cute you've ever seen in your adult life. So, right. This is fucking deranged. And I've seen three episodes and I am desperate to stop talking to you people and go and watch the rest. This is utter madness. So... It's probably not what you think it is because I was reading about it before I watched it. And I was like, oh, from the producers of The Crown. And mm-hmm. then I read that the production company also made White Lines, which we've talked about on this podcast. And I was like, um, <laughs> But, you know, Sarah Pimbera's book was massi- a massive bestseller, um, psychological thriller. I was like, okay, you know, this could be, um, this could be right up my street. It's utterly 
nuts it's massively pulpy it's really heightened don't expect realism in this is what i'm going to say to you (laughs) even if the plot actually does sound weirdly kind of prosaic and normal so as you say it's essentially the story of a single mum played by Simona Brown. Um, And she goes on this night out, as you say, she's going to meet her mate and her mate doesn't turn up and she spills a drink on this guy. They end up having a couple of drinks together, clearly chemistry. And then she goes into work and who does she see? Her new boss and his really hot (laughs) wife. Oh my God. And everything gets much, much, much weirder from there because it doesn't sound weird, but it really is because it becomes this odd... Not even a love triangle, because there is an element of that. She starts, um, she has this relationship with the the doctor, who's her boss, played by Tom Bateman, and his wife, she strikes the friendship up with, played by Eve Hewson, who, by the way, I find utterly compelling and weird, and I'm kind of obsessed with her after watching this. So you have this kind of what you'd say is a fairly standard thriller love triangle, but it's it's not really about that because what it's about is he is a psychiatrist and his wife is utterly unhinged in the most kind of mad woman in the attic, completely, you know, it's like Mrs. Rochester is all I'm going to say. She's basically Mrs. Rochester. And she, from the very first moment you see her, you're meant to think she's like clearly mad. There's pills everywhere. There's hints at some kind of um, awful backstory due to her instability. Um, There starts to be the weirdest depiction of a mental institution I've ever seen. So everybody's dressed in these weird white outfits. They're all sat up trees, just sat on tree branches. (laughs) Like, there's a weird well, like, in a total rings-esque way. There's some weird woods. Like, it just gets weirder and weirder, and they build out this wall, this this world and these secrets and this past and all these little hints, but nothing about this is subtle. Nothing about it is conventional. I am obsessed with um, Eve Hewson because she gives this amazingly... Like, I can't describe it as anything other than super heightened and super pulpy. Every word she says, her mannerisms, how she carries herself. And you have the contrast kind of between her and Tom Bateman, her husband, who is literally, you know, every word he says is is kind of said in this weird voice with these like <laughs> suspicious facial movements. Nothing about this. It's very hammy. It reminded me of um, The Stranger. So, you know, obviously we talked about yeah. The Stranger. So that very OTT heightened british thriller but then weirdly simona brown is kind of like this down-to-earth um single mom the scenes with her she's meant to be kind of this blast of normality into this weird world they've created between them i I honestly i was watching it going what the fuck is happening i don't (laughs) understand this is so and part of me was like this is the kind of thing you'd expect it's a bit like the undoing and you think i'm used to this i think in kind of american psychological dramas when british people do it i'm not being funny we're so bad at this but it's so i hate to say it because i hate all that guilty pleasures fucking shit around telly but also, it's a total guilty pleasure. I watched three of them last night, unable to turn it off, while also going, this is absolutely mad and and unbelievable, and none of it rings true. And they're all acting their absolute socks off. But I am absolutely going to watch 
the rest of it. If you just submit to the weird, pulpy, OTT nature of this, I think you will honestly have a lovely, lovely, lovely time. Yeah, and and more than that, because I've watched the whole thing, obviously. Um, I mean, if even if it carries on, right, in in the same vein as the first three episodes, it doesn't. But even if it did carry on in that vein, it just carried on in that vein of a, of a completely balmy, ludicrous, brilliantly slick um, British psychological thriller with rampant, you know, with like sex scenes, shagging. Sofa and, sex, um, a lot of sofa, sofa sex. Se- a lot of sofa sex. <laughs> interspersed a lot of with awkward. Yeah, awkward. Awkward sex. Yeah, exactly. Awkward sex scenes. And you're right, there's this brilliant, the, uh, the contrast between the performances is so interesting. But then it takes a term. And all I can say is, it. so an already bonkers deranged program story goes down the most batshit route I've ever seen in a major television drama. And I fucking loved it. And people, people are going to be like, they're going to get to the bit don't you tell know, me, don't whatever you do. Obviously, it's not even strict. So it's not, it's not just a twist. Like, it's not like, so that, you know, oh, you can't call it, it's a turn. It takes a turn, <laughs> is how, what I would say, that then completely revises everything you've thought of was happening anyway. And it kind of taps in, actually, to the performance styles we're talking about. So in the end, kind of, that's, that makes sense. It's one of the few things that makes sense. By the end of it, you're like, I don't know whether this turn it's taken is so batshit crazy that it's like everyone's going to go, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And it's definitely like people will be divided. When the book came out, there was a hashtag WTF that ending, what the fuck that ending, because people were so blindsided by it in the book. And it was very divisive. And a lot of people, I like people, when I wrote, I wrote about this for Heat last week and I had people, a lot of people, my colleagues emailing me going, oh my God, I can't wait for this. I thought the book was incredible, but the ending was the worst thing I've ever read in my life. Literally, but uh, three people said that to me. So how do they deal with it in the thing? I was like, well, yeah. I mean, some people are going to go with the ending is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Um, Others are going to, I, so my experience of it was, oh my God. This is, I can't believe this is actually happening. I can't believe they're even attempting this bit of narrative thing. It's all like, without trying to avoid any description that will spoil it in any way. I couldn't believe they're actually going down that route. And then, but when, when it finishes, you're left going, actually, there's something very clever, quite clever about it because the, the ending, ending, ending of it is like, oh my God, that's really clever because it just, it kind of works in a demented way. And, I, I, and I've been reading all sorts about how Sarah Pimber was encouraged when she was writing the book to go really, to go go down a really bold, maverick, batshit route. And she was like, okay, I'm going to embrace the batshitness of this. And the TV thing, consequently, clearly why they commissioned it, it's like, we are, we are going to lean in to the madness and they bloody well do and it is i loved it i absolutely loved it the, and it's and it is borderline terrible but loved it at the same <laughs> time. to be fair i think you you made this point Boyd, and i should have made it which is it looked like it shot well yeah. it's like yeah the, there's slick. none of that it's yeah. so slick and it's so well executed um yeah I thought the production design was. I thought all of that stuff is exactly where it should be. It's yeah. the, the the writing. The writing is so unhinged, and it's not yeah. my kind of thing to read at all. But it makes me want to read the books. You've got to presume that com- that kind of flavor of yeah. the script, which is there isn't a huge amount of dialogue, weirdly, but w- when it's mm. there, every word is like salivated over. <laughs> it's oh god, I can't wait to watch it tonight. I'm so excited. Yeah. 
<laughs> it is exactly as you said. But Boyd's absolutely nailed it there. It is borderline terrible and yet somehow incredibly compelling. I mean, it is so hammy. And there are these fucking sub-Nightmare on Elm Street dream sequences. I'm just like, what is going on? Oh, my on? God. <laughs> totally um, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 dream weavers, right? I was yeah. like, oh, my dream God. Warriors. Dream Warrior. Sorry, not to. Totally. Totally. <laughs> I mean, I was I was very much here for it. The first episode, it took me a while because I was a bit like, I found it quite hard to work out what it was. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm, yeah. it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. And I'd heard a lot about, you know, that there was a turn, there was an ending, you know, those things. So I'm, I'm with it just that. I thought it's only six episodes. And like, the first episode, I was like, okay. And then when I started to embrace the madness and just roll with the madness and sort of let, let it wash over me, I enjoyed two and three a lot more. And I am genuinely going to watch the last three of these uh, because I have to know what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, it, it's strangely compelling. It's one of these things that someone asked me, oh, is it good? And I'm like, I don't know how to answer that question. No. I think you should watch it. I, I mean, don't know it, if it's good. But... It totally achieves what it sets out to do i'll say that for it and yeah. you're right at the beginning it's got weird things like they're watching like because it's got this domestic situation with a single mum and her kid who yeah. are very naturalistic and they're yeah. watching bake-off on tv aren't yes. they yeah. they're like <laughs> it's like and then in the next scene it's like rampant slick sex on the with, with like, handsome it's so mad it's like it goes from um cares to sliver that's it's <laughs> like those two exactly. things you're like oh yeah this is a grounded yeah. realistic yeah. depiction of working class single mo- and then yeah. you're literally in yeah. sliver and i'm expecting yeah. like you and know sliver by the in- way not even basic instinct no <laughs> yeah. i chose that sliver. reference very yeah you chose very well yeah. chose very well william baldwin in sliver oh my god tom bateman by the way i went on set once with um to an itv drama that tom bateman said i can't even remember the name of it it was so unmemorable that whatever it was i was and he's such a funny guy so he would have loved this i think this is like you know because he's really entertaining and funny doesn't take himself seriously as an actor at all and i think like he would absolutely have had a ball making this (laughs) making this great insane fucking thing well behind her eyes lands on netflix on wednesday the 17th of february uh, next up this week, we have For All Mankind Season 2. Now, as you may recall, this was a show that we didn't really review when it debuted at the Apple TV launch. Uh, after all, with a show like Sea to Watch, who even has the bandwidth? Uh, however, a lot of you have written and say that we kind of missed a gem with this one. Uh, so we're going to address that issue with Season 2. This is... Of course, the latest show from Battlestar Galactica's Ron D. Moore. And apart from featuring a row of astronauts singing Bob Marley at the Sun, this is actually a thing that happens, this takes place in an alternate timeline where the US did not win the space race and the military race. <laughs> <laughs> and the militarization of space <laughs> is well underway. So um, then a load of stuff happened in season one that I don't really know much about. Boydie, I'm hoping you're slightly better informed about how we got to this place. Yes, well, <laughs> my experience of watching this is a bit weird because um, I watched the first episode when it came out um, dutifully and found it a bit dull, frankly. Same. Um, yeah. yeah. Um, so season two... And season one was quite wet, spanned quite a large period of time from the you know the late sixties in its alternate version of history where Nixon was president and got a second term and um, and it kind of spanned a long, long period of time. Mm. It took in um, it's early eighties now, aren't we? We're like yeah, nineteen eighty three. So second mm. season, cut to the chase. It's nineteen eighty three. They've done a big time jump, and it doesn't span as and it's, it's over across a few months in nineteen eighty three. And they it begins this series with us with as the first series did with a kind of summary using news fake news footage or real footage documentary footage 
setting out the alternate history. Things like, you know, Prince Charles marrying Camilla straight away rather than getting bogged down in that old Diana business. <laughs> and um, and it's quite entertaining. That opening, I found very entertaining because a lot of the stuff, obviously the whole crux of this series is what would happen, what would have happened in history to the United States particularly if Russia had won the space race and Russia had put a, a man on the moon first. And it's all about the effect that, you know, that narrative, the importance of the narrative of putting someone on the moon was so crucial um, throughout the 60s, you know, from JFK almost to JFK, you know, talking about it. And then um, in the end, Nixon gets, you know, is furious in, in the first season because Russia's beaten them to it. And the, and the profound psychological impact that has on Americans and um, at the time and how it tapped into the Cold War and all of that. So it's kind of like about how something like that, an, an, an important, massive scientific cultural moment in history, if that hadn't have happened, how does that then play out? How does that affect the rest of society? And I think it's a really interesting question. I think it's a really interesting idea. And I quite like alternate history stories. I think that, I think that, and I think, uh, and so I watched the first episode of series two. I hadn't watched the, the other um, load of episodes of series one, nine, I think there were 10 in all. So I kind of missed out a big chunk, to be honest. I'm being honest. I didn't have time to go back and watch them. I watched the first episode of series two kind of early, earlier in the week. And I thought, oh, it's interesting, but I'm still not getting what why people love it so much. And I have to admit, like, really, really people whose opinions I really respect, like Andrew Ellett, who's a script editor, he was the script editor on um, Michaela Cole's Chewing Gum and done loads of brilliant comedies. And I think he's one of the most intelligent and um, wise um, people talking about TV and how TV works. And he loves this show. It's like, for him, it's like one of his favourite shows of the decade. He loves it so much. And I'm like, I'm not getting mm. why this... It's, it's interesting, but I find it quite slow. It's very similar to the right stuff in so many ways, you know, you know, people getting trained to go into space and what happens. Then what happened for me was I got to about episodes, I watched another couple of episodes of this series. I thought, actually, it's slowly gripping me and it's, I'm slowly getting really involved in the characters. And it is a slow burn thing. And I think once you get to know the characters and the situation, it becomes really gripping. It's, it has a kind of madman quality for me where it's like, even though it's science fiction on one level, it's also talking about the place of work and the, and the, and it's looking at, um, men versus women, the, the interrelations. And then the first series has a whole stretch in the middle, which is all about women going into space and how America kind of fights back with the Russians by putting the first women um, on the woman on the moon. And that's really interesting. So I'm now going to go back to the first series and kind of watch all that. So I'm really into it now. I'm just into it as a thing. And I really feel like I'm going to go back, watch the first series, and I think I'll really like it when I've watched the whole thing. And apparently the last few episodes of this series are incredible. Like people who've, who, who, who've seen it already, you know, saying it's some of the best episodes of TV of recent times. So even though I think on one level, it's a bit, it feels like a bit dull when you first watch it and it feels a bit slow and it is a slow burn. I am, I'm, at, I'm into it now. And I think I'm going to embrace it fully and we'll go back and watch every single episode. And I confidently predict that Terry will agree with you completely. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, definitely. But I, did, I think Boyd had interesting points because I didn't watch the first season. Um, and I will also say, and this is very relevant, I watched, I watched the first couple of episodes of this and I watched it directly after Behind Her Eyes, right? So that was what I was... <laughs> and let me tell you that they could not be more polar opposites. <laughs> Everything we said about it, about how compelling it was, all of that... And maybe it wasn't the best uh, behind her eyes chaser, quite frankly. Because um, in many respects for me, it just suffers from that thing of being what I would call classic Apple, which is clearly loads of money, like incredible actors. The production design is absolutely gorgeous. 
the money on the screen is ridiculous. And I do get the sense that the thing that you have to care about, to Boyd's point, is the characters. Everything I've read about the show says it's all about the characters. That's the whole thing about this. That's where the connection is. That's where it's compelling. I didn't reach where Boyd reached. I did find the news footage or what would have happened if John Lennon hadn't have got just a little, I just, I hate hate that as a device. I really hate that as a device. I did find it a bit bland, a bit slow, a bit smug in places. um, And I didn't find it compelling. And that, I I found it really difficult. I watched the first episode twice because I kept getting distracted by like things out the window and I found it really hard to give it my attention. That opening scene of them singing the astronauts as the, you know, as the Bob sun Marley. comes up or yeah. whatever was happening. Like I just I I and and as I say, watching it after behind her eyes, it couldn't have been a more different experience. With, I would love to say that I'm going to go back and watch season one and really commit to this like Boyd has done, but I just don't think I'm going to. It did remind me of the right stuff, which also I wasn't a massive fan of. Um, if you are into slow burn, character driven, incredibly expensive, well made dramas, then this is a show for <laughs> you. Um, but I've got three more episodes of Behind Her Eyes, fucking insanity to watch. <laughs> I have to say I'm more Camp Terry than Camp Boyd on this one, which wounds me because this is yeah, a Ron D. Wow. Moore, I guess it's kind of science fiction show, alternate history. Like when the first season came out and I watched the first episode and I read the Guardian review and they called it solidly, blandly entertaining. Oh. And for me, I thought that really just <clears throat> nailed it for me. It is. It's solid. It's really bland and it's quite down. Now, from what our listeners have said, it gets much better the further it deviates from sort of our established timeline as it gets more and more separated. So as the season went on and it became more speculative, it became a much more interesting watch. So I went into this season two with with high hopes. But again, the first episode of season two, it's really quite dull. Like not a lot happens until the last 15 minutes where there's a little bit of excitement. And to be fair, those last 15 minutes, I was pretty gripped by that. Like this happened, I was like, oh, oh, now, now, paying attention but there's a part where i'm like why am i watching joel kinnaman play golf in his office while being a dick like this this is the show at this point it's like this is not enough to draw me in and i don't know enough about these characters to be invested in why they're having you know latency free video calls in 1983 from the moon but let's not even get into that um it did yeah it didn't do it for me and and while i don't deny there might be a show that i would enjoy in here somewhere i feel like at the moment I'm not feeling especially inspired to dig for it. Uh, I watched season one opener and season two opener, and maybe those were the two wrong episodes to watch, but both of them have now, frankly, bored me a bit. So, uh, You know, I he f- has a technique, though, that I think can be traced back to Battlestar Galactica. Because when I watched Battlestar I think Battlestar Galactica takes time to get into it. I think you say that, but the first episode of season one, 33, is one of the most action-packed episodes of the entire show. It's the one where they get attacked by the Cylons every 33 minutes and then have to nuke yeah, a load but of civilians. There's the whole, but there's the whole... <laughs> before that, there's the whole... Feature length, it's different episodes, aren't they? Before the kind yeah, of so the pre- mini series before the that, mini series was but fucking tedious. I don't know that it is. Like you know, again, it does start with a mm. sort of an apocalyptic holocaustal genocide against the human race. You know, that's pretty exciting. Yeah, but the way he tells no, but the way he tells that story is weirdly quite is quite is very deliberate. He has a, very, a thing about deliberate pacing and drawing into the characters and setting the scene and establishing a world, and then quite I think quite steadily and deliberately kind of. Uh, building up to a big action moment or a big climax or a big 
ten- tension, even within episodes. I, he I, can I see be deliberate. Yeah, he can yeah. be deliberate. I think I that's think, definitely I, true. I see I think similarities. The thing here is that there is a level of NASA nerdery at work in this show, which runs very, very deep. And I think if you share that, then there's loads here probably yeah. to love. But for those of us who are maybe not, it feels a little bit of a slog. I think they have um, fun. Okay, maybe. I, I thought that like there's a bit where in in the first episode, like there's the, the guy has an electric car and he's and, and it's yeah. like you know they could have had electric cars um, established by 1983 if they hadn't have been so obsessed with you know with the space race. <laughs> yeah, and that, little moments like that are quite yeah. funny and clever yeah. and smart. I think and it has that is interesting. They're yeah. saying that you know after if we'd focused in different areas, the world would have been very different. Yeah. I think the speculative aspects of it probably are pretty pretty you know thought provoking. But again, it was an hour and. I, I felt every yeah. minute of it. Okay. Um, but anyway, anyway, your mileage may vary. If you're already on board for For All Mankind, then season two does arrive on Apple on the 19th of February. Finally, this week, we have Bloodlands. Uh, this is the first show to come out of Jed Mercurio's new production company. And this one stars James Nesbitt as Belfast police officer Tom Brannock, uh, who is investigating a missing person. However, the discovery of a suspicious photo implies this missing person might have a deeper motive and one that leads all the way back to the troubles and an unsolved case connected to the peace accords. Terry, thoughts? Right. So, this has all of the right ingredients for a Terry White loved show. So, you know, please, crime drama, thriller. It has been likened, and I think you'll this will probably be in pretty much all of the coverage about the show, to Line of Duty. As you say, Jed Mercurio's involved. He's the EP on this. Um, it's set and filmed in Belfast. I think, actually, the set is the exact same one that doubles as the HQ for AC-12. Um, James Nesbitt is in it, who was, as we know, in The Missing, which I also started watching recently again, um, which was the Baptiste precursor. So this has got kind of what I would consider amazing uh, police, cop, drama, crime, thriller credentials. And it is important to say that it isn't created by Jed. So the series no. creator is Chris Brandon, who's a new, who's a fairly new writer. I was reading about him. He was named um, one of Deadline's 10 Rising uh, British Writers in 2020. I think he did this TV3 police drama called Red Rocks, and he's done shorts. <laughs> now, here's the problem with this, and I really wanted to like this. I, I love shows like this. I've spent all of my time looking for shows like this that I haven't actually seen yet. Um, <laughs> it, and it's a four-parter, I believe, and this may account for some of what I'm about to say. And right, just like me, actually, I haven't done the plot. It's 20 years on from the Troubles. James Nesbitt is a veteran detective. He's also a single dad. They're fishing a massive car out of the sea. And it's linked to um, a cold case investigation. This is 20 years on from the Troubles, by the way, and a series of disappearances, including his wife. Now, the thing about this is it is frantic. It's pretty much all handheld in terms of how it's shot. There's some manic zooms all over the place. Um, It moves incredibly fast from short scene to short scene, And because it doesn't really, it jumps straight into the action. So it doesn't really spend time establishing what I would say is people, time, place, backstory, context, relationships, etc. So what you have is this weird 
constant exposition along the way, which is all done through dialogue between the characters. And I've got to say, they don't have, one of the things that really bugged me about this is there's no, what I would call proper conversation. So James Nesbitt and his partner, they kind of bark these short pieces of dialogue at each other and explanation for what is happening, half of which is pure exposition. So there's a whole bit where they go in to see like the boss and um, she goes, we have people in our community who think that who think we're the enemy. The Keenans, who are a family um, they're investigating, are uh, the guy who's disappeared. They're right at the heart of that. You know, the, these three people know that. Why are you telling each other these things? There's a bit where they're in the um, in the evidence room, and he goes, "If we find the files on this case, we can link it to the Keenan case." Well, she knows that. That's why you're in the evidence room looking for the files. So I, I just found that really clumsy because you had whole bits of of unbelievable dialogue and not unbelievable in terms of oh my god, it's unbelievable, like it's not believable, where they're just using it to do narrative links and to bring the audience up to speed because they haven't established that already and because there's so much backstory and it's going back 20 years and it's a cold case. So I just I found it a bit manic and not in a good way. I didn't find the characters, their relationships believable, partly because of this dialogue issue. I found the exposition really drove me mad by the end of the first episode because it was just constant exposition. It trades in all of those kind of cliches as meetings on wastelands. I mean, I found this, and I've only watched the first episode. I have to say, I found this really disappointing. I just think when I think about Line of Duty, and it's done so realistically. You believe you are in the headquarters of AC12. You believe those coppers and their relationships. And obviously, we've taken the piss before out of the way they go, oh, you've got the UGC to the OBD to the DGD. Like, we we know that that's... <laughs> the UCO inside you know, the OCG. <laughs> but there's, there's a believability to Line of Duty, as well as the kind of compelling nature of the central case or mystery that makes it just the very best at what it does. And from a production perspective, it looks exactly as it should. I found some of the production on this just a bit shoddy. Like there's a whole way the bit, they're in this um, like investigation room and, and they're running the team through it. There were literally five people who stand there and don't say anything and don't interact and are literally, I presume, five extras. And they kind of stand there. The evidence board is is... Honestly, like, I've never seen an evidence board. Like, it all looked very done, like somebody was trying to make a believable police headquarters, but none of it rang true. The way it was lit, there was this weird spotlight in the corner of the... I, I don't know what was happening. I just thought it didn't look good enough. It didn't look as slick or as believable. If you're going to make it not look slick, it needs to look realistic and gritty and, like... You'd expect it to look, it looked like a set and it had looked like it had been built by an art department. Um, and I just think it just wasn't up to what people expect it to be. And I think people are expecting something in the world of Line of Duty. And I just don't feel that that's what this was. And I did find it disappointing. And to be fair, and James Nesbitt was acting his socks off, like to be fair. And he does this role very well. I think he's um, actually really underrated. But this, for me, just did not hit the right notes or the right quality, quite honestly. Well, I really liked it, obviously. Of course you did. Um, <laughs> you uh, shock us. I mean, 
what I liked about it is, I mean, I like the franticness first of all. That whole, I thought the I thought the pace was was really good. I really liked that um, quality to it. Directed by Pete Travis, who did Dread, um, did a brilliant job on Dread, the the Judge Dread movie that uh, yes. Alex Garland wrote. Great film, great film. Um, and I think he does a really good job here of kind of keeping it constantly kind of in motion. And, and so I kind of didn't, I didn't, yeah, no, the, the the dialogue, the exposition issues didn't really bother me a, a, that much. I mean, it definitely doesn't have the line of duty, no exposition brilliance to it. it definitely is a different type of storytelling. But I, I, I kind of went with it. What I really liked about it, most of all, I think James Elizabeth is great. And I think I really like the fact that his character is not a quirky weird you know detective with um you know who loves opera or you know has these kind of weird eccentricities they didn't feel the need to ladle on he's just a guy a professional guy doing his job who who has a personal um issue with you know with the killing of his wife he's trying to get him and his daughter trying to get through i thought the scenes with him and his daughter were really convincing i just believed in him as a character really i thought he was kind of good no frills kind of cop kind of figure and then his partner equally i liked, I liked that relationship he had had with her so I kind of liked all that but what I liked about it most of all was the whole thing about it being set in this in Northern Ireland and really tapping into it's not just set in Ireland for the sake of it I feel it's about Northern Ireland oh, yeah, right 100%. now and it's about a community the effect that the troubles had on the community and that still has and how that's resonating now still and how the crimin criminality that's going on is connected to the troubles they talk about the good friday agreement you know there's a scene lorcan cranich is in it, who i've always I love lorcan cranich brilliant from cracker <laughs> back to go way yeah. back to cracker uh and that sequence where they're talking about the the effect that the 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 the, uh, the, uh, the Irish agreement has on what they're doing now, I thought was fascinating. So I was fascinated because I've never seen that before. I haven't seen you know um, a, a drama that takes the fact that it's set in Ireland and addresses its issues fully head on. And I felt it's quite bold and brave to me because as far as I can make out, once you start talking about the troubles and these communities and the, and, and the splits in communities in Northern Ireland, it's, get, it's quite easy to get into hot water and it's quite easy to get into controversial areas. And people don't necessarily like that being focused on, but it completely goes there. It completely establishes itself. We are going to talk about, you know, what, what effect this whole situation has had the troubles have had and and how it's still affecting things today so mainly for that reason it felt really different to me and felt like a kind of like i was learning stuff as well as being a frank I, I was hugely entertained and so i watched two episodes um i think it's good that it's only four it feels like yeah you know they're not just making it long for the sake of it, it feels like i feel like the story is going to play out in, in a very kind of finely honed interesting way but most of all I think the setting and how and <laughs> Terry shaking the head. Terry shaking the head. That's almost a finger wag, right? Yeah, there. that was almost finger wag. Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm, I'm fully, on, I'm fully in favour of it. Yeah, I, I must admit, I thought the setting is its saving grace here. I, I, I found that fascinating the way it ties back to the troubles talking about how fraught not just that time was but how precarious the peace accords were and how everything was on a knife edge when that happens and this plot kind of hinges around that key moment the signing of the peace accords and the ending of the troubles uh and how fragile it was then and to a certain extent is still now um and so that drew me in and i, I think it being set in that world sort of elevates it above being like a, a crime thriller because there's a lot more going on under the surface I did find it a little hard to get into 
into it took me a while i mean it's quite dense uh, and they do sort of dump a lot of information on you but it doesn't skip along like line of duty is incredibly watchable oh yeah. i would argue this is not i know it's probably unfair to compare the two but fuck it, i'm gonna do it anyway uh you know this is <laughs> I not mean, everyone as, will <laughs> yeah of course uh this is not as watchable it's not as much fun but i get the impression that this will and i've only watched the first one i get the impression that this will reward perseverance um there are a couple of things about it i didn't like there is a scene with an owl necklace very on in the first episode that i thought was incredibly clumsy um but but that said i think i'm definitely going to watch another one and if that sort of tickles my fancy i will maybe watch the last two as well um because i do want to know what happens and i'm interested in this world and mm. it has a it has a kind of a slight sort of bleakness to it that i find strangely appealing yeah i like uh, the also, bleakness yeah, yeah i think it, it's, it, it, it's yeah i like that it's an exactly, interesting yeah. tone i like yeah. that and i'm fascinated there's there's it's a wintry. photo of a yeah, it is wintry. It's a really yeah. wintry show. Yeah. Um, but there's a photo of a crane, which I just need to know what that's all about. Because I'm like, why do they keep showing me a photo of a crane? So uh, yeah, I will. I will watch more of Bloodlands. Uh, I think it's. I think it's well worth well worth a look. And Bloodlands does appear on BBC One on February the twenty first at nine pm. What else is out this week, Boyd? We've got Devils happening yeah. on Sky Atlantic, which yeah. is the Patrick Dempsey financial conspiracy drama. Have you seen that? I have, yeah. Well, I've seen the first episode. It's Devils, I mean, if, in a normal week, we would definitely have reviewed it, put it that way. It's, yes. um, it's a very, it's another brilliantly produced, kind of very slick. It's a bit like industry. It's kind of set mm. in the same world as industry, which I loved. Um, of that whole world of financial dealing, so it's and full of bell ends, is what you're saying. I mean, it's full of bell ends. Yeah, you're gonna you hate it from that point of view. Yeah. It is. I mean, it's literally one bell end is slightly less bell endy than another, but it's more thrillery. So it's like industry, but with more genre, more of a genre thriller piece. And there's a whole, and it's quite. It's not nowhere near as good as industry. I think because it's trying to be more of a genre piece, trying to draw mm. you in. With more, what I think, is, uh, so I kept, I, I enjoyed it. It's very slick. Um, and McDream is in it. Um, uh, Patrick Dempsey, and he's really good. And the main guy, everyone's very kind of handsome and good looking and powerful. And they're all, and it's all filmed in a very, very kind of slick way. But it's something slightly empty about it. Whereas I think in the end, what made industry so good was it was had there's a soul to its main character. This, you know, that that young woman who really kind of I think made you identify with her and 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 so the whole bell end aspect of it i think melted away because in the end she was the character i think you could really root for and identify with in this i, I not so much so i i think it will suffer from comparison but mm. it's still a really kind of really well made show you know that's uh february the 17th at 9 p.m that drops on sky atlantic blue blood season 11 starts <laughs> on the 15th if you're still watching that and you're not chris hewitt that could be there for you also last week tonight returns finally after their break uh on the 15th as well which is i guess today as we go out um and uh that's one of the best shows on television so well worth watching anything else boyd that i've missed no i think that's about it really yeah what then what then would be our pick of the week oh, oh. Easy. Behind her eyes. Every step. What's that, Terry? For all mankind? Yeah, for all mankind. <laughs> oh, easy peasy. Uh, behind her eyes. We're not sure if it's good, but we are sure you should watch it. It's, I think it's uh, good. <laughs> Well, uh, that is it for this week's show. If you had a giggle, then please do consider leaving us a review and a five-star rating. And if you'd like to bolster our self-esteem by adding to our followers on social media, you can find us at James C. Dyer, at Boyd Hilton, and at Terry underscore White. Next week looks set to be a bumper show, as we'll not only be feasting our eyes on the all-new series of Unforgotten, yes, uh, but we will also see the launch of Star on Disney Plus with all the new shows that come with that. So you won't want to miss out on that one. But until then, grab a cup of tea, 
draw the curtains, curl up on the sofa, and fire up Netflix, because it's time to get some winks in your life. Fairies forever, pilot out.